The research has been clear on this for decades, that most of what leaders know about leading, they learn by leading. Again, the conventional wisdom is about 70%. You still need the head knowledge. You still need to know the keys to delegation, but you really learn about delegation when you delegate. Do you want to be a leader? In a constantly changing world, our emerging leaders look different, come from various backgrounds and from all different age groups. Leadership is changing and it's hard to keep up. But the good news, you can be a leader too. You can be an emerging leader. Welcome to the Limitless Leadership Lounge, a tri-generational conversation for emerging leaders. Come spend some time with us to discuss leadership from three angles. The coach, Jim Johnson. The professor, Dr. Anuma Kareem. The host, John Gehring, a monthly guest. And you. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Spreaker. So come on in and make yourself comfortable. Well, we are really excited to have our guest on today, best-selling author and coach is going to uh, dive right into how Mark Miller has made an impact internationally. And I know he's going to make an impact on you as well uh, as you're listening to this episode of the Limitless Leadership Lounge. Thanks for listening to us, whatever you're up to today. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, getting some value from us, be sure to be leaving us a review to help uh, others find our podcast up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you're listening to today. So coach, go ahead and introduce Mark Miller and let's dive right into some more leadership lessons. Yeah, looking forward to having Mark. Interesting enough, I heard Mark on uh, Ryan Hawk's uh, podcast, The Learning Leader Show, and Mark was so gracious to leave his cell phone number that I had to reach out because I really enjoyed. I, I read his book and I'll share a little bit of bio. We actually had Ryan as a guest on our podcast as well. So uh, we're really looking forward to having Mark uh, as part, one of our guests. Uh, so Mark Miller is a business leader, communicator, and best-selling author. Today, Mark serves as the Vice President of High Performance Leadership at Chick-fil-A, which actually he just retired from. He's actually going on his own now. He began his career at Chick-fil-A more than four decades ago as an hourly team member in one of the chain's local restaurants. Shortly thereafter, he became the 16th corporate employee when he went to work in the warehouse. Since that day, he served in leadership roles across the business, including corporate communications, quality and customer satisfaction, restaurant and operations, training and development, and more. During Mark's tenure, Chick-fil-A's annual sales have grown from $75 million to almost $20 million. Uh, that, that's a pretty good increase. <laughs> For the past 25 years, Mark has focused his energy on serving leaders, helping them grow themselves, their teams, and their organizations. He has traveled the world encouraging and equipping leaders. Mark began writing years ago when he teamed up with Ken Blanchard to write the international bestseller, The Secret. More than one million copies of book Mark's books are in print in 25 languages. And Culture Rules, which I just finished and recommended my network, uh, is his 11th book. And Mark, thanks so much. We welcome you to the Limitless Leadership Lounge. Well, Coach John, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I am delighted to be with you. And as that uh, bio reflects, I've been selling chicken 100 years. But <laughs> the truth is, I've really been trying to serve leaders. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your group today. 
Well, I know you have so much wisdom and our, you know, our focus to help young emerging leaders. So I know uh, our audience will benefit greatly from your insights. So Mark, I'm going to start uh, from the Chick-fil-A. Uh, you know, I've done some research on Chick-fil-A. It's certainly one of the great restaurant organizations and one of the best organizations in the world. Uh, and, and you were being a person that worked there for over four decades. I'm interested, uh, the founder, Tua Cathley, uh, that started the restaurant, I believe, in the 40s, uh, really uh, became one of the great leaders. I'm just curious, what did you learn from Truett? And I know his son, Dan, now is the head of uh, Chick-fil-A. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey with them and what you learned from them as a leader. Okay. Wow. What a huge question. Nothing like uh, a big question to start with. So I did have the privilege uh, to know Truett Kathy personally. He actually selected me uh, in 1978. I, uh, had, I had worked a short stint in one of the local Chick-fil-A restaurants and I was, I was awful in the restaurant. I was so bad. I felt like I was going to be fired any day. Oh, and wow. so I, I made a strategic career decision. This is not advice, by the way, but uh, I, I quit because I thought it would be better to leave than to have to explain the rest of my life why I got fired at Chick-fil-A. And so <laughs> I went and got another job. And six months later, I got laid off and I thought, shoot, I need a job. So I said, I can't work in their restaurant. Maybe I can work in their corporate headquarters, which, of course, makes no sense in any universe. I just chalked this up to the mind of a child. This was a long, long time ago. And so I walked in to the Chick-fil-A headquarters and I told the receptionist I wanted a job working in their warehouse because I knew they had a warehouse. And so she told me to have a seat, which I thought was a great sign. She didn't call security. Now, I didn't know there wasn't security, but she told me to have a seat. And just a few minutes later, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, the inventor of the chicken sandwich, came out and took me into his office to conduct that interview, which made no sense to me even back then as a kid. But I later learned he only had 15 corporate employees, including himself. So if you've only got 15 people on the payroll, it makes a little more sense that the head man or the head woman would be conducting those interviews. And so I tell people it was a short conversation uh, and it was it was a combination, I believe, of God's grace and lack of discernment on Truett's part. He gave me that job working in the warehouse. I got to work in the warehouse and the mailroom. And that was in 1978. Wow. So I've learned a lot from Truett, uh, beginning with that first conversation, is that he was willing to take a uh, a leap of faith on a kid to pack boxes for him in his warehouse. I guess he figured, how much damage could I do? <laughs> but but I learned so much from him over the years. I'll, I'll, I'll point out just a few things. Um, he was really the, the perfect blend of a focus on results and relationships. Mm. And, and he felt like you really could do both. And, and he would argue, I believe that that's a higher bar for success. That if you just get traditional tangible results, that's a pretty hollow victory. But what happens if you get uh, those results and you cultivate meaningful, significant, life-enriching relationships along the way. 
And I just saw him model that. He he refused to compromise. We're going to go after both results and relationships. I argue that it it's a it's an elevated definition of success. And and Truett, uh, he showed me what that looked like. Wow. It's an entertaining story, really. I mean, uh, but there's so even beyond how fun it is, the story that you you got into Chick-fil-A, it's, it's still uh, has some leadership lessons ingrained in it, uh, even though it is kind of funny, to be honest. Uh, and it's inspiring, too, in its own way. But I think one of those lessons being the fact that uh, you had to step forward and give yourself that opportunity. You, it might not have made sense at the time if you didn't feel like you were the best Chick-fil-A employee in the store. What makes you think you could go to the corporate headquarters <laughs> and get a job, right? It, does, it might not make sense, but yet you took that leap of faith. How important is that for a young and emerging leader to maybe step outside their comfort zone, maybe push themselves a little bit uh, because who knows what opportunity might be opened up to them? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And and I didn't have any grand plan or, or vision, but I had a sense that it was a value-based organization. And that's that's all I really knew at the time. And I felt like there were good people there. And that's what I was looking for. I mean, I was I was in college, but I was going to school at night. I needed a job to pay for college. And I didn't know that it would be a career decision, but there was something that attracted me to the organization. And I think it's important when you're looking for a job that that you also look at the organization. Um, and so, yeah, that that's what got me in the door. And then, um, you know, I think there, there are many, many things that probably have kept me at Chick-fil-A, not the least of which is they gave me opportunities to grow and they gave me opportunities to, to add value. And um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great ride. Now, Mark, maybe just two or three quick pieces of, of advice could you give to our young and emerging leaders who may now have just graduated college or are getting winding down in their college career looking for that full time job, um, not to just take any particular job, like you said, for other reasons, but to actually look at the company, look at the values. What sorts of values would you be looking for as a young person getting into the job world? Well, it, it's interesting. We've done some research. Uh, on what top talent is looking for in a in a job, and one thing they're really they really care about is: Am I going to have opportunities to learn and grow? Mm. I mean, we know the statistics are staggering. It, this was not true, obviously, in my generation. Coach probably wasn't true in your generation, but today, folks are going to have ten or twelve or fifteen jobs over their lifetime. And the, the last data I saw says that three of those will be career changes. So let's just, you can debate that. You can think that's not good. Coach, You I don't know what you think about that. It's like, I, I love people that, that will stay in a job. That's not today's reality. So, so, okay, if that's not the reality, how do we as employers provide roles that will attract those people, even if it's for a, a season, and knowing that that's their predisposition, I think we've got to create an opportunity for them to learn and grow. And uh, I, I would be looking for that in, in an organization. Another thing that we find top talent is looking for is they really do want to be well-led, which, again, puts a burden on us as organizations to be sure that we can lead well. 
some people hear that and they go, well, doesn't everybody want to, you know, be well-led? Well, for top talent, it's a condition of employment. And when they realize they're not being led well, they're an immediate flight risk. More typical talent, they'll just complain about you around the dinner table, but they'll keep coming <laughs> to work. Right. So, uh, so those are some things I think you need to be looking for. Are you going to be well-led? Are you going to have an opportunity to learn and grow? Uh, those things come to mind. Well, Mark, delving a little bit deeper into Chick-fil-A, because one thing that I've admired from the outside is their ability to train leadership. And so often it seems to be something that a lot of corporations talk about, but then it's like one of the first things to be cut. Can you delve in a little bit deeper and share what your leadership training was involved in and what you're trying to focus to help those leaders become better? Yeah. Well, that's bigger than your first question. So let me <laughs> let me let me let me give you a little bit of a glimpse into that. Uh, in the early days, when we were much smaller and and the business was not nearly as complex, we didn't do as much leadership development. What what we focused on in the early days was selecting amazing leaders, uh, and we still try to do that, but. But back then, that was pretty much our only play. We ran that play over and over and over. And I'm speaking specifically about the restaurants. We'd try to get a world-class leader. And Truett would say, get the right leader and let them, let them do what they do. And again, there's still some truth in that today. We're still attracting world-class leaders, but they're running multi-million dollar businesses. Uh, I talked to an operator recently who's doing $20 million in one location. Well, that's an organization. And, and for that to be successful, to sustain that level of success and to even grow that, that leader is going to need leaders around them. And it, it's true at all levels and all volumes. And so about 25 years ago, we, we entered the modern era of leadership development at Chick-fil-A. And I'll give you a quick story on how that happened. Um in my experience, when an organization has a problem to solve or an opportunity to seize, a typical response is to put a leader on it. Now, she or he will, in most cases, not single-handedly seize that opportunity or resolve that problem, but they will put a team together. They will cobble together the resources. They will cast vision. They'll, they'll lead a group that will solve the problem or seize the opportunity. Well, about 25 years ago, we had problems and opportunities, and we looked over our shoulder at our leadership bench, and we said, uh-oh, uh-oh, we, we, we don't have ready now leaders. And we began conversations about, I hope this person can lead in the future. I think this person can lead in the future. Maybe they'll be ready in a year or two or three. Yeah, that was not a good place to be. I don't know if, how many of your listeners have ever realized that their leadership bench is just not uh, adequate to meet the challenges of the day. So what do you do in the short term? You give those problems and opportunities to existing leaders. And that works smashingly well in the short run. But long term, it's a recipe for disaster, right? You'll burn out those leaders. And so our executive committee acknowledged, understood the implications of where we were, acknowledge that and they asked me to figure it out they said you, you've got to figure out how to accelerate leadership development well i did what you might do in a similar circumstance i put together a team of really smart people and i said hey guess what we get to figure out 
We get to figure out how to accelerate leadership development. And and that work started about 25 years ago, and we have been on that journey ever since. I would even take it a step further. This may be beyond the bounds of your question, but we really said what we want to create is a leadership culture. And we would define a leadership culture is a place where leaders are routinely and systematically developed and you have a surplus. Now, some people would say, well, a surplus, that sounds like waste. No, the surplus is your indication that it's actually working. Is right. You've got leaders ready on the bench as opportunities and problems arise. You actually have leaders who can take those those issues. And so we began that journey 25 years ago uh, with, with the starting point, I believe, for any organization that wants to create a leadership culture or even accelerate leadership development is you've got to have an agreed upon definition of leadership. We did not. We had people all over the organization that had their own definitions, and none of them were fundamentally flawed. They were just different. And so you had men and women training, educating, and developing leaders in accounting that were very different than those being developed in marketing or operations. And and you 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 just had a mess on your hands. Now, what happened when when you were able to all come under one definition of leadership? What changed in the organization? Well, interesting, a fantastic question. We were naive, right? Because prior to that moment, remember our our strategy, our approach had been immersion and osmosis because we were small enough that leaders would make themselves known. And you'd say, oh, that looks like a leader. That looks like a leader. But again, around the year 2000, we had outpaced that process. And so when this team went to work, we were just struck immediately by the absence of this common working definition. And so that's what we worked on. And and I said we were naive. So when we finished that work, we shared it with the organization. I mean, Ken Blanchard and I, some of your audience will know that name. Uh, His most famous work is the One Minute Manager. Ken convinced me and Chick-fil-A that we had to write a book about our point of view on leadership. And we did. Um, And that book's now in 25 languages. So glad we did that. But we naively thought that we were done. We thought we were finished. Like, we're just giving everybody the book. This is what leaders do. Go go knock yourself out. And what we learned is that people were saying, well, what do I do next? What do I do next? And that was both internal voices and external voices. And that's when we, we really learned that it's more than defining leadership. That is the starting point. But if you want to create a culture, a leadership culture, you've got to do several other things. I'll hit those really quick for you. And if you've got follow-up questions, we'll go there. Not only have you got to define it, that's step one, you've got to teach it because telling somebody that leaders cast vision is different than helping a leader learn how to cast vision as as an example. And you can fill in your blank there. Telling somebody what a leader does is not the same as equipping a leader to do that. You coach, you could say a lineman, you know, makes blocks or a point guard passes the ball. Okay, well, I know what they do. I actually don't yet know how to do that and how to do that at a high level of skill and a high level of proficiency to do that consistently. So you've got to define it. You've got to teach it. You've actually got to give leaders an opportunity to practice it. The research has been clear on this for decades that most of what leaders know about leading, they learn by leading. 
again, the conventional wisdom is about 70%. You still need the head knowledge. You still need to know the keys to delegation, but you really learn about delegation when you delegate. And so what we realized is too many organizations had taken uh, an academic or classroom-based approach alone, and they weren't allowing leaders to practice. Let me give you one quick manifestation of that through an example. I was in a meeting one day. We were talking about a problem that needed to be solved. And somebody jumped up to the flip chart and said, all right, who can who can who can do this for us? And they started listing leaders and they had about six or eight names on the flip chart of leaders. And I said, time out. I said, you know what all those leaders have in common? And it's like, well, no, no. And what's your point? I said, well, well, those are all seasoned veteran leaders. They said, yeah, what's your point? I said, is there an emerging leader that needs this opportunity? Now, sometimes you're going to put your A player on it. It's going to be so important. It's the World Series, ninth inning, game seven. You're going to put the 300 pinch hitter up there. But if it's April in a preseason game, you're going to put a 200 hitter up there because you want them to feel the pressure of ninth inning, two outs. There's a development opportunity there, right? And so in that particular case, we said we had identified a woman that we thought could be a senior leader in the company someday. We had talked about her openly. And I said, what about this person? And they said, well, you know, she's ever never actually led anything. I said, well, if we think we can, she can be a senior leader someday, we should give her a chance to lead something. So this will be a chance for her to practice. And so that's that third uh, element. If you're going to create a leadership culture, you have to define it. You have to teach it. You have to let people practice it. Fourth, you have to measure it. You have to measure it. And this is this is tricky and problematic. A lot of leaders don't think you can measure it. Uh, again, if you want to probe this, but you, you can. And there are any number of ways that you can create a scorecard to judge the health and the vitality of your leadership culture. And you measure it and you'll you'll get more of the desired behaviors. And then fifth and finally, uh, after you define it and teach it, and practice it and measure it, your existing leaders have to model it. Because you'll undermine the whole thing. If you're advocating a brand or an approach to leadership, but your existing leaders aren't walking the talk, it, it's all a waste. So that was a big, long, complicated answer answer. But we started thinking a definition was enough. And now we would say it's first among equals, but it is insufficient in and of itself. You know, Mark, I, you had some great points there. I'm going to delve back in what you said, you know, when you first started, where you were trying to bring in leaders really before you had any kind of leadership training, but obviously that did change. But you did say that you had some core principles. I'm curious, because as a young leader, if you got the opportunity to build your team, what were you looking for to bring the right people onto your team at Chick-fil-A? What, what were some of the characteristics? Well, I, I, again, I, it, it depends on, on the role and the context. I would say, as we think about leaders, let's talk about leaders. If you're going to bring leaders onto your team, we adopted early on, a picture to represent our point of view. And it's the picture of an iceberg. And we believe that that leadership and, a, and an iceberg have a lot in common. About 10% of an iceberg is above the waterline and about 90% is below. And we would say the same is true 
of leaders. They're, the 10% represents the skills of the leader and the 90% represents their heart. And ultimately, it's the heart is what's going to determine whether people follow you or not. Because if your heart is not right, no one cares about your skills. I'm guessing everybody listening to this can think of a man or a woman they know who has the skills of leadership that they would choose not to follow, or they would not want to follow them. Well, if you don't want to follow somebody with the skills, it's probably because you question their heart. Are they are they a self-serving leader or a serving leader? Are they really just trying to advance their own career, or do they care about you, and do they care about the organization? So I would say when we were trying to add leaders to the team, we were trying to look at both the skills and the heart, and that's been true for decades. We, we think both matter. In fact, some, some of you, uh, your listeners might remember the name Peter Drucker. I would argue the greatest management and leadership thinker of the last 2,000 years. And Drucker said, the quality of character or heart doesn't make the leader, but the absence flaws the entire process. It's not about skills or character, skills or heart. The best leaders have both. And I think we need, we need to go eyes wide open into the selection process, into the interview process. Uh, most organizations focus almost exclusively, I would, I would suggest, on the skill piece. We're talking with Mark Miller, and we'll get into some of your best-selling books uh, very shortly. But first, I have to know, you, you went from warehouse and, and mailroom worker to the leader that you you were. And you talked about the young woman who got the opportunity uh, that you gave her to practice leadership. Could you talk about a time or two that you you got the same opportunity to practice leadership throughout your ascent uh, from that bottom rung to the top rung of Chick-fil-A? Well, sure. Uh, and, and this goes, let me go back and link this to advice to young leaders. And this is not a popular message, but I think it's true. We control our readiness, not our opportunity. I want to be ready so that when there is an opportunity, somebody wants to put me in the game. Now, if over a, an extended period of a time, you don't get opportunities, you may want to join another team. And that's your prerogative. But I have always tried to focus on learning and growing. Uh, it, it was actually, I would argue, the the defining moment in my career came very, very early when my supervisor said, hey, if you want more influence, if you want more opportunity, and you want more impact, he said, there's only one path. Well, he had my attention. I, oh, say that again. He said, if you want more influence, more opportunity, and more impact, there's only one path. I said, what's that? He said, lifelong learning. He said, your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. I said, really? He said, that's how the world works. He said, when you can't grow anymore, you can't increase your influence. You can't increase your opportunity and you can't increase your impact. Now, I was telling this story recently. Uh, it's, it's been a couple of years now. It's pre-COVID. And somebody said, well, that's probably easy for you. And I said, well, which part? They said the lifelong learning. And I said, well, why would you say that? 
And they said, well, I bet you're a learner. And some of your listeners are familiar with strength finders uh, and, you know, 34 different strengths. Everybody loves strength finders because it tells you what you're good at. And um, somebody said, I bet I bet learners in your top five. And I said, I don't think learners in my top 10. I don't think learners in my top 20. And they said, well, that's interesting. In fact, that's odd. And I said, well, why is that odd? And they said, well, you act like a learner. And I said, well, I've already told you I made a choice. If that's the way the world works, if that's the golden ticket to more influence, more opportunity, and more impact, I decided I was going to be a learner. Now, my parents wish I'd decided that when I was a high school kid because I was awful. <laughs> I was awful. But I made that decision over 40 years ago, and I'm still on that path because I want more influence. I want more opportunity, and I want more impact. Uh, and so that decision, back to your question, I think has driven my readiness, although in many cases, I was clearly not ready, but I think the organization said, yeah, but he's a learner. He'll figure it out. Mm. I mean, I had some career changes in there and I never asked for a, a job change. I serve at the pleasure of the organization. Would you go do this? Yes. Would you go do that? Yes. Would you go do this? Yes. And again, some of those I was woefully un under or unqualified, not under, I was not qualified, but I had demonstrated my willingness to learn. And I think that's why the organization had the confidence to give me some of those crazy opportunities. I mean, I started our corporate communications group. I think I was 19. Wow. Now it was a small business. I don't want to overplay that. I mean, <laughs> but that was, we, we called it audiovisual services then. Hmm. And it's, it's, it morphed over time. And it, it's an elite today, an elite corporate communications group. But I didn't know Jack about corporate communications, but I was willing to learn. Well, Mark, I think I'd like to come back uh, to a little bit more about your personal growth, but I, I got to attack your most recent book um, because I enjoyed it immensely. When I heard you on Ryan Hawk's show talk about your new book, The Culture Rules, and me being a high school basketball coach for over three decades and building a team culture was hugely significant in my success uh, as a coach. I, and I know in the book you talk about the three A's. Can you elaborate on them and, and delve into it for our audience? Sure. I want, to, I want to hit this quick, but I want to give just a little bit of context. Um, anytime we've done a project like this, we try to figure out what is universally true. I can't promise that we've eliminated all of our bias, but I can promise you we never start there. And so in this particular project, we ended up interviewing um, over 6,000 leaders and frontline uh, individual contributors from 10 countries because we wanted to figure out what is universally true. I'll share two quick stats. Uh, as you can imagine, we had a lot of data. 72% of U.S. leaders say that culture is the most powerful tool at their disposal to drive performance. 72% of leaders in the U.S. acknowledge un un prompted, unaided. I mean, we didn't we didn't twist their arm. We weren't looking over their shoulders. 72% say it's the most powerful tool at their disposal to drive performance. And nothing scored higher. Wow. We asked that same group of leaders to rank their priorities. They put building and maintaining culture at number 12. Now, wow. I don't know about you. I am not working on my 12th priority. <laughs> on a good day, I work on a couple of my top five, right? So, so 
here's the fundamental problem with organizational culture is that leaders aren't working on it. Mm. And leaders animate culture or not, right? Every organization is going to have one. It's either by design or by default. So we said we want to close the knowing doing gap. They know what's important. And they tell us, again, nobody told them they had to tell. I mean, they could have lied to us. I mean, we think they told us the truth, right? And the numbers are very similar globally that leaders aren't working on culture. And so two reasons leaders aren't working on culture. I'm going to do this really quick. One is not in the book. We did some work a few years ago on leadership effectiveness. We said, why is it that so many leaders who know how to lead aren't leading well? And what we discovered is there's this toxic mix that we chose to call quicksand. Busyness, distraction, complexity, resource scarcity, fear, fatigue, success. It, it, it's a mess. And here's why I mention it right here. By the way, we wrote about that in a book called Smart Leadership. It's a mess because if you're a leader in quicksand, I can promise you, you're not working on culture. And by extension, I mean, you're working on survival, right? And by extension, you can't help others out. Therefore, those around you are probably in quicksand, which means they're not working on culture either. Mm. And so we've been challenging leaders. If you want to work on culture, the first thing you got to do is get out of the quicksand to get to higher ground. And I've got a free assessment. I'm assuming you could put this in the show notes, but all you have to do is text, be smart with no space, be smart, text that to 66866, 66866. And shout out to my team that worked on that. They were amazing. This is not one of those assessments that when you finish it, you'll you'll think, oh my gosh, that's 10 minutes of my life. I'll never get back. This is not one of those because it gives you specific things you can do based on your responses to begin getting out of quicksand. So that's one reason leaders aren't working on culture. The other reason, which is what the book Culture Rules is about, is leaders across the planet said they don't know what to do. Mm. It's such a big, complex, complicated topic. I mean, culture on face value, it's invisible. But it's the most powerful tool at your disposal. So leaders are going, what do we do? And so we wanted to figure out how to make the topic approachable, how to make it accessible, how to make it actionable. And we came up with three cultural rules. I'll hit them for you real quick. First is aspire. Aspire. You have to share your hopes and dreams for your organization's culture. Now, that may feel like a blinding flash of the obvious, I cannot tell you how many leaders we met who cannot simply, succinctly, in a fashion that is repeatable, share their hopes and dreams for their culture. They just can't do it. And some would say, well, it's in my, it's clear in my head and it's clear in my heart. And we'd say, that's a great place for it to begin. It can't stay there. Because to create the culture, you have to rally others to join you and make the aspiration a reality. So if if you can't communicate it, if you can't articulate it, you can't cascade it, and you can't rally others. First rule, aspire. Second rule, amplify. You have got to constantly be looking for ways to 
amplify and reinforce the aspiration. This is when people think, oh, he's serious. Oh, she's serious. Oh, we're really going to do this. Oh, this must be important. Oh, I better get on board because the, the leader and leaders are communicating through word and deed. No, this is who we are becoming, and I want to join you to go with us. Now, I, again, I don't want to camp out here, but I want to give one or two examples because the aspiration, that, that's pretty straightforward. But when you say amplify, what does that mean? One is one strategy and, and the accompanying tactics is role modeling. People always watch the leader. So if you say something's important, that's fine. But are you living like it's important? Again, that could be obvious, but there are too many situations. It's tragic when the leaders are are saying one thing and doing another. And not only are they undermining their culture, they're undermining their leadership when they don't align those things. Another one is storytelling, Coach. And I know you'll appreciate this. Uh, I got to spend some time with the uh, football coaches at Clemson a few years ago. And I know everybody listening is not a Clemson fan, but, you know, they've been pretty good over the last decade. Sure and Unfortunately, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, I'll spare you the details, but they were telling us that one of their strategies for creating a culture of execution was storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they said, every time we meet, we tell stories about players who are helping us make our aspiration a reality. Mm-hmm. And I said, that sounds hard. And they said, well, which part? And I said, well, you guys meet a lot. They said, we probably meet more than you think we meet. We meet a lot. And I said, do you have enough stories? And they said, we got 150 guys that are living every day to make the aspiration a reality. We got plenty of stories. Our biggest challenge is which ones to tell. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, by the way, the more we tell those stories, the more we see those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it and it creates a, a, a virtuous cycle. And they're not the first ones to come up with that. Uh, it was Plato that said a couple thousand years ago, what is honored in a country is cultivated there. Mm-hmm. So you honor people through storytelling and you're going to get more of that behavior. So there's a long list of ways that leaders can amplify an aspiration, but that's when it gets real. That's when you start to see traction. So before I give you the third A, let me offer a cautionary note. If you have a clear aspiration and amplify it well, your culture will begin to move toward the aspiration. It'll happen just like the sun rises and the sun sets. Clear aspiration, amplified well, the culture will begin to shift. The risk is that leaders declare victory. If you think you're done, you're done. You can never stop working on culture. And I would say even worse than stop working on it is to move into protection mode. If you try to shrink wrap your culture, you'll suffocate it, which is why you need the third A, which is to adapt to always be working to enhance the culture. And there are any number of strategies and tactics, but we won't get into that unless you want to. But you have to to stay on culture. I had a leader recently say, when do we get to stop working on culture? I said, well, okay, (laughs) let me me try to find an appropriate way to answer that question. I said, when are you going to stop caring about performance? Mm. They said, well, never. I said, okay, well, If you believe that culture is the number one tool, the number one mechanism, the number one play to drive performance, 
then I guess you can stop working on culture when you quit caring about performance. Hey, Mark, I want to give you just a quick uh, story that I think you might appreciate um, that I think really illustrates what you're talking about is uh, one of the things we our mission for our basketball program was to develop winners on and off the court. And I used to share our leadership philosophy. We called leave a profit. We want to make everything we touch turn to gold, not garbage. And I remember when I would go into a locker room of opponent school, one of the things I started doing, you know, because they're looking at the leader is if I saw a piece of trash on the floor, I would pick it up and throw it out. And the really neat thing is my last year, I had a really good player that ended up making the NBA. And after the, the at halftime of the junior varsity game, which was before the varsity game that he's playing, he used to go over and pick up all the cups and throw them in the garbage. Do you think that made a pretty big impact on our program that our best player that already had signed a full scholarship was doing that? So I, Absolutely. I really, really appreciate what you're sharing there for sure. Yep. People so, always watch the leader. Yeah. So those are the three A's. I hope that would add value to somebody uh, in your audience. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And certainly Culture Rules, it's available on Amazon right now. It's available wherever you get your books. Uh, I know, Coach, you had a question, so go right ahead. Okay, so my final question, Mark, and we really appreciate your time and insight today, is that going back, you talked so much that you were a learner. And it's something I, I, I have a presentation I talk about the, the questions uh, effective leaders should be answering. And one, I, I shock people and I say, do you have an intentional personal growth plan? So throwing it back on you, uh, what do you intentionally do to continue? Because John uh, says this all the time uh, that I always tease him that uh, the first person you got to lead, of course, is yourself. So what what can you share What how you're intentionally growing each day? Yeah. And so let me affirm what you said. And I also say that the hardest leadership is self-leadership. So mm -hmm. let's uh, let, let's get that figured out as best we can so that we position ourselves to lead others. All right. So big, big, big question. Um, to your point, do you have a personal development plan? My answer is I do. And I have a 30-year life plan, which I'm about to update. And somebody said, I'm not sure you need to work on 30 years. I said, you know, who knows? I'm going to plan like I need another 30 years. So I'm, I'm updating in the next 30 days. I'll update my 30-year plan. Uh, and then I do an annual planning process. But I do, I do more. I mean, it encompasses many, many things. But uh, I'm part of a leadership development group that I started uh, 25 years ago. We meet twice a month studying leadership, wow. three hours, typically three hours a whack, twice a month, 10 guys in a room. And uh, yeah, we're 25 years in and we just made a decision this week, Monday night, we're, we're upping for another year. And wow. so, um, so that that's a, a tactic that I think some people could embrace. Uh, I try to read widely. Uh, I spend time with, with successful people, benchmarking uh mentors throughout my life have been instrumental and um yeah i mean all the stuff you might expect from somebody that says hey i'm going to get serious about lifelong learning um i'm still trying to rediscover some of my uh, rhythms that i had pre-covid honestly and i said well you know somebody's saying well covid's been over for a year well i know it has but before covid i drove to the office every day and i could listen to an audiobook i could do one a week in my drive time. Yeah. Well, I hadn't had drive time for three years. So I'm I'm still trying to figure out, okay, 
how do I how do I reclaim that? How do I put those disciplines back in place? That's part of what I'm going to work on for my uh, plan for next year. One more thing I'll say, and this won't this won't serve everyone, but it's very tactical. Um, the more I review my plan, the better I execute my plan. The more I review my plan and somebody says, well, do you review it once a quarter or every six months or do you review it monthly? When I'm on my A game, I review my plan every day. Wow. Now you're thinking, is that feasible? Well, a friend of mine helped me with that a few years ago. I don't know if some of your listeners are going to have a one page plan. I know a guy who has a 30 page annual plan. That's a little bit much for me, but that's what he does. And he he covers all areas of his life and his relationships and his finances. I mean, he has a robust plan. So a friend of mine said, well, you know, the coaches uh, in the NFL, they've got a playbook that if they printed it out, was probably three or four inches thick, but they always stand on the side with a single card. Right. And so I have over the years now, the last eight or 10, developed the discipline, no matter how detailed and robust my plan is, I create a one page summary wow. of my plan. And that's, that's what I review every day. Okay. And when I'm on my A game, I'm reviewing that every day. And again, of everything that correlates to my success in development, for me, that's the biggest one. The more I review the plan, the more, uh, the better I execute against the plan. Now, many of your listeners don't need that type of frequency and that type of repetition, but it, it serves me well. That's awesome. Just one addendum to my question, because obviously you've written a lot of books. Um, if you were recommending to a young and emerging leader, what would be a couple books to help them become a better leader that you would recommend? My new book coming out in February. No, it's a, it, it's a, <laughs> no, uh, it's called Uncommon Greatness. I think it's going to be a good one. Um, I would probably, my go-to is The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Now, for some people, they're going to go, well, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. And he wrote that book 50 years ago. Yes, he did. And they're still using it in college campuses all over the world today. I would argue it is the source of the Nile. And it's a little paperback about this thick. And it talks about personal effectiveness for leaders. And mm -hmm. I love that book. Um I, I think pound for pound, you're 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 not going to go wrong there. Um, another book I would recommend for leaders is High Performance Habits. It's not written for leaders; it's written for humans. Mm -hmm. But uh, Brendan Bruchard wrote that book, and I love that book. It's kind of got a Seven Habits of Highly Effective People feel, right. but modernized. Yeah. And so I, I have given away a lot of a lot of copies of that book over the years. So those are a couple that come to mind. Very good. And Mark, Culture Rules is out now. You talked about another book coming out in February. That will be your 12th already, right? Yes. Yes. Wow. Exciting. So uh, is there a way to pre-order that at the moment? Or is Sure. That I mean, it's on should... Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's called Uncommon Greatness. Uh, the core idea is that too many leaders are, are striving for mere greatness. And there is a higher bar, uncommon greatness, where the focus is not on you, but the focus is on others. And that book is about how to how to put your ladder against that wall and, and how to how to make it a reality. Culture rules and uncommon greatness as well. Are there any of your your previous 10 books, too, that you feel uh, would be effective for a young and emerging leader if they're just starting out in the world of leadership to start with? 
I have a bias. I referenced it earlier, smart leadership, because I think young leaders are just as susceptible to quicksand as more seasoned leaders. And you just can't lead well from quicksand. You just can't. And it's exhausting and it sub-optimizes your performance and the and the performance of those around you. And so I, I want every leader to escape the quicksand because there's no other path. Talk about your path. Uh, you'll never reach your full potential trying to swim in quicksand. You just won't do it. Mark Miller, uh, all those links to those books, by the way, are down in the show notes, as well as your opportunity for your free assessment just by uh, texting. Thanks. Uh, very simple uh, text message to get started with that, too. That's one of the other ways Mark can help you. Mark, is there any other way to uh, either get in touch with you or uh, yeah. find out more about your work? Thanks for that. So let me give you a couple things. Uh, we have a brand new website that should be up by the time this podcast goes live. I mean, it's up now, but it's about 60% finished. It's called leadeveryday.com. And we have our sights on making this the most useful and usable leadership site in the history of the world. And we want to fill it up with resources for leaders. So we're going to be trying to get that 60% complete to 80 or 90% complete over the next weeks, few weeks. So leadeveryday.com. Two more ways you could reach me. One is my email. My personal email is mark at leadeveryday.com. And then my cell number is 678-612-8441. I couldn't give that on, out on Ryan's show and not give it out on your show, Coach. Well, uh, so call or text. I got probably 150 text messages after I was on Ryan's show. So I welcome the opportunity to engage with you. If I can serve you, uh, please let me know. Thank you for joining us this week at the Limitless Leadership Lounge. To listen to this episode again and to find previous episodes, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Spreaker. You can also get in on the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Then tell three of your friends to join in as well. Coach, Renuma, and John will be back again next week for another tri-generational leadership discussion. We'll talk to you then on the Limitless Leadership Lounge. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.